You're listening to the Brighter Finances Podcast, the podcast designed to bring the brighter days of life to life through financial education and comprehensive case studies. Hello, and welcome to the Brighter Finances Podcast, the show that brings educational content to help small business owners and content creators bring the brighter days of life to life. This is your host, Louis Guajardo, the founder and lead financial planner at Brighter Days Planning. Have you ever wondered how do the wealthiest people on this planet invest their money? Well, today we're going to discuss a group called Tiger 21 that consists of ultra high net worth individuals. We are going to analyze their members asset allocation and ask ourselves why we don't copy that for ourselves. Stay tuned as today's episode will provide a lot of insights on how we should build portfolios that stand the test of time. Let's begin by asking ourselves, who is Tiger 21? Well, on their website, they describe themselves as, quote, Tiger 21 is a peer learning community that takes on topics that matter most to our members. Fellow visionaries, entrepreneurs, investors, and executives from an array of industries comprise each member's personal peer group. Our network of members effectively serve as legacy planning partners who help each other improve their investment acumen, tackle common issues of wealth preservation, manage family-related challenges, understand estate planning options, and share ideas of philanthropic endeavors. So the organization consists of 106 groups, which span over 46 cities worldwide, and they consist of over 1,300 members. Now, in order to qualify as a member of Tiger 21, you must have a minimum $20 million of liquid assets. Liquid assets being cash, bonds, stock, money market funds, CDs, treasuries, etc. So there's a lot of information on Tiger 21's website, and they go over a lot of other topics outside of solely investing. However, for today, we'll be focusing on Tiger 21's quarterly asset allocation report, with the most recent one being released for Q3 of 2023. So I won't be sharing the entirety of the report, but if you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to visit their website linked in the show notes. Their members allocation consists of nine categorized assets. Now we'll focus on the top three, which are private equity, real estate, and equities at 30%, 25%, and 20% respectively. The biggest surprise here is that equities is only 20% of their members' portfolios. And while private equity being 30% may seem surprising, it really isn't if we break it down. But first, let's go over what private equity is. In its essence, all private equity investments are investments in non-publicly traded companies. Now, these are typically open to accredited investors as well as high net worth individuals. However, you and I can invest through ETFs and mutual funds from popular fund companies such as Vanguard, Fidelity, etc. Now, the two main types of private equity are leveraged buyouts and venture capital. But because it's only an investment in a non-publicly traded company, it can also include an investor's portion of their own business. So a few features of private equity include illiquidity, meaning that it is very difficult to get your funds out of there without having a long-term horizon, which is another feature of private equity. Uh, They can also offer attractive returns at time with lots of risk, and they have unique cash flow, often requiring additional funding over the time of the investment. 
Now let's consider the membership facts and determine how the majority of the members become ultra high net worth investors in the first place. Well, in an insight released on January 23rd, 2024, they state that 51% of their members are active entrepreneurs or business owners. Two things come to mind here. Are these small businesses being considered as part of the private equity allocation? It's kind of unclear if it is or not. Uh, because some of these people may be holding upwards of 50 or 60 or 70 percent of what is considered a small business or private equity, which can be things like tech company startups, investment companies, and others as well. Now, with the majority of the members coming from small business and private equity, they're likely to have connections in the industry as well, which enhance their comfort levels and may provide them with additional information that you and I do not have access to. So it's likely that we as common investors don't have the type of access to info and resources that ultra high net worth individuals do, likely making it unreasonable that we can expect the same outcomes from this type of investment. As for the real estate component, it's likely attributed to investment property, business property, and possibly vacation homes or other types of real estate as well. So real estate is a bit easier for common investors to gain access to in the form of private residents, uh, real estate investment trust, and other funds as well. You as an investor will likely grow your real estate investment over your lifetime as you purchase investment property um, and probably owning a personal residence as well. Now, how would the asset allocation of a common day investor look if we were to compare it to that of an ultra high net worth investor? Now, it's not really possible to determine an exact allocation for someone without knowing their exact circumstances, but using the Office of Financial Readiness, we can use an asset allocation calculator with a few assumptions to give us a rough estimate of what an allocation may look like for somebody with these given assumptions. Now, if we take a look here at this calculator provided by Office of Financial Readiness, we can input some assumptions, give an age of 30, current assets of 100,000, savings per year of 10,000, a marginal tax rate of 25%, with income required of 0%, and a risk tolerance of 8 on a scale of 1 to 10, placing the risk tolerance as moderately aggressive, and an economic outlook in a similar place with 8 on a scale of 1 out of 10. With this, we can calculate an asset allocation by investment category of somewhere between 85% for stocks, 6% for bonds, and 9% for cash. Now, how does this look when we compare it to that of a Tiger 21 member? Well, a Tiger 21 member only is investing 20% in public equities, which would be stocks. They have about 2% in hedge funds. They have about 8% in fixed income, 1% in commodities, 1% in currencies, 12% in cash and cash equivalents, 1% in miscellaneous, and then the top two categories being 25% for real estate and 30% for private equity. So you can see some pretty significant differences here, mainly being that these members of Tiger 21 have much more access to private equity, hedge funds, and then real estate as well. Now we as common day investors probably don't invest as much into these because we don't have the information necessary to make a informed decision on these investments. And then with the real estate component, we don't, we may or may not have the amounts of cash flow needed um, to be able to purchase real estate at this time. However, we can still access some of these investments through ETFs and mutual funds with companies such as BlackRock, Vanguard, or Charles Schwab. Now, how can we invest like the ultra high net worth? 
Well, the fact of the matter is that we probably don't want to invest like the ultra high net worth. It's likely that their investment strategy was completely different before they got their money. And some of the ways that they may have gotten their wealth would be through entrepreneurship, savings, or investment plans. And we may be much more likely to receive either multimillionaire status, ultra high net worth, high net worth, whatever that figure is that you're looking for, well, we may be able to achieve it much quicker and much more effectively through one of these routes or potentially through all of these routes. With entrepreneurship, not it's not a sure way, but like investing in the stock market, investing in a company that you control may provide better benefits over time. It likely won't come from income, but rather the sale of this business that you're starting. Now, in terms of savings, having a savings plan and sticking to it can have a compounding effect, especially if we start early on. So we can even jump into a compounding calculator and see what this might look like. If we were to contribute $500 a month for seven years, how long would it take for us to um, become a millionaire? Well, in this situation, it would only take 37 years, which if we started at the age of 20 would be when we reached the age of 57. Now, if we doubled our monthly contribution to $1,000 with the same interest rate of 7%, we would become a millionaire in 28 years. Again, if we're 20 years old, this would be at the age of 48. Now, the last thing that we had discussed in terms of achieving millionaire status would be investment planning. It's important because how do you expect to receive a 7% rate of return? Well, partnering with a financial advisor is probably a great first step. They will help with risk assessment to determine how much risk you are comfortable taking. They will determine asset allocation based on your risk, and they will determine asset locations such as taxable accounts versus tax-deferred accounts versus completely tax-free accounts such as HSAs. Lastly, they can help with finding a savings rate achievable but ambitious enough for you to crush these goals. So when it comes down to investing like the wealthiest people in the world, the fact of the matter is that we don't need to. We don't need to research private equity firms, take on loads of debt in real estate, or strap our cash flows when the banks come calling. But instead, we should create a plan suitable for our unique situation that is achievable yet ambitious enough to challenge our savings rate. This will help us achieve our goal, whether that goal is becoming a multimillionaire or just becoming financially independent. So focus less on what the ultra-wealthy do and master your plan today. We hope you enjoyed this show of Brighter Finances. And until next time, cheers to brighter days. Thank you for listening to the Brighter Finances podcast. If you'd like access to some of our free resources or would like to see how we may be able to bring you brighter days, then go to brighterdaysplanning.com and click get started where you can schedule a one-on-one meeting with myself. We'd love to learn about your life and see how we can be of service. Lastly, please remember nothing that we discussed through this podcast should be considered advice. You should always consult with a financial, tax, or legal professional so they can become familiar with your unique circumstances before making any financial decisions.